Chapel, Mason City. And so Ephesians today, chapter 4, verses 7 through 16, walking in unity, part B. Brought a picture today of something you may or may not recognize. This is a push-me-pull-me. Does anybody know what that is? Seen that before? Dr. Doolittle. So look at this animal. And I want to ask you a question as you look at this animal today. How important do you think it is for that animal to be in unity, for there to be one mind, (laughs) right? A lack of unity would be disastrous for a push-me-pull-me, I would think, you know. Kind of a silly illustration, but I think it's vivid. Paul has been dealing with the same sort of subject in the body of Christ. He's been dealing with unity, with people being unified around one mind, uh, around Christ Jesus. And that's what he talked about last time. So we're kind of in part two of a message here. You remember last time we dealt with um, verses one through six of this passage, and The two points that we dealt with, I'll show you on the next screen here. You remember from last time, we dealt with the characteristics needed for unity and the foundation for unity. Now, this time we're going to be dealing with the gifts that bring unity and the growth that comes in unity. So we're taking the two last outline points from the message we started last time. So just a little bit of review. The characteristics from last time that were needed for unity, you remember they were had to deal with walking in a worthy manner. Uh, Paul started the chapter, chapter four, and he said that some of the traits that are needed for unity in the body of Christ are humility, gentleness, uh, being patient, bearing with one another uh, in a kind, loving demeanor to people. And we were to maintain the unity that the Holy Spirit provides, not getting miffed over every single thing that happens. We get offended about something or somebody doesn't respond the way we like. We don't get bent about those things. We just cover them in love uh, so we can remain in unity. Uh, We're to seek to serve others and get the focus off of ourselves and put the focus on Christ and the church. Then Paul gave a doctrinal basis for unity in the family of God in verses 4 through 6 of Ephesians 4. And it says, there is one body and one spirit, just as you were called in one hope of your calling, one Lord, one baptism, one God and Father of all who is above all and through all and in you all. That's the doctrinal basis for unity in the body of Christ. If somebody isn't adhering to one of those things in verses 4 through 6, we can't have unity with them according to the scriptures. We have to be aligned on Uh, what makes Christianity, Christianity. And so Paul gave us those two things last time, the characteristics for unity and the basis or the foundation for unity. This time, he gets into the gifts that bring unity and the growth that comes in unity. Let's pick it up at Ephesians chapter 4, starting at verse 7. But to each one of us, Grace was given according to the measure of Christ's gift. Therefore, he says, when he ascended on high, he led captivity captive and gave gifts to men. Now this he ascended, what does it mean but that he also first descended into the lower parts of the earth? He who descended is also the one who ascended far above all the heavens that he might fill all things." 
And he himself gave some to be apostles, some prophets, some evangelists, and some pastors and teachers for the equipping of the saints for the work of ministry, for the edifying of the body of Christ, till we all come to the unity of the faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God, to a perfect man, to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ, that we should no longer be children tossed to and fro and carried about with every wind of doctrine by the trickery of men in the cunning craftiness of deceitful plotting. But speaking the truth in love may grow up in all things into him who is the head, Christ, from whom the whole body joined and knit together by what every joint supplies, according to the effective working by which every part does its share, causes growth of the body for the edifying of itself in love. Father in heaven, as we turn to your word today, Lord, we approach it as it is, the very words of God, Lord. And we ask that your Holy Spirit would be our teacher. Through the foolishness of the preaching of man, Beyond a man, would your Holy Spirit speak to us here today? You know exactly what we need, Lord. And so we're looking to you for that in Jesus' name. Amen. The gifts that bring unity, verse 7, but to each one of us grace was given according to the measure of Christ's gift. Now, in other words, what he's saying is in the body of Christ, everybody has been given a spiritual gift, at least one of them. 1 Peter 4.10 says, as each one has received a gift, uh, minister it to one another as good stewards of the manifold grace of God. Peter's saying that everybody's given it at least one spiritual gift. And that's what Paul starts off by saying here. And he says that they are, the basis, they come from God's grace. Notice that there in verse 7. But to each one of us, grace was given. Spiritual gifts are not earned or achieved. They are given as God you know, gives grace. They're, they're God's grace to the body of Christ. You know, grace can't be earned or achieved or deserved or anything like that. They are gifts given. Now, it's important to understand, built in with this grace, that with these gifts, that there isn't one spiritual gift that's more important than another, right? It's times that kind of goes that way. There are some, sometimes people value certain spiritual gifts over others. They'll say, well, the, you know, the teachers, they're certainly the most valuable um, or, the, you know, maybe the, the people playing the music or something like that. Or, the, you know, in the Corinthian church, it was those with the spoken gifts, the speaking with tongues and other things. They were kind of ranking, you know, the importance of gifts. It's important to know that, like it says here, that they're all given by God's grace. So if you have a spiritual gift today, you can't take credit for it at all. It's not something that you learned. It's not something that you... Uh, developed on your own. It was a gift that was given to you by God. Now, it's important also to know what a spiritual gift is, so let me give you a definition. A spiritual gift is a God-given ability to serve God and other Christians. So there's a simple definition. It's a spiritual gift is a God-given ability to serve God and other Christians. I'd like to commend Romans 12 to you and 1 Corinthians chapter 12 through 14. If you're taking notes and you want to learn more about spiritual gifts, those two, chap well, two sections uh, deal with uh, the understanding of spiritual gifts. Um, again, that's Romans 12 and then 1 Corinthians 12 through 14. Now, we have to understand spiritual gifts are not talents, 
okay? Uh, or special abilities. Like you were born with abilities, right? And you were born with talents. I mean, some people are born with art and music and mechanics and athletics. Those aren't necessarily spiritual gifts uh, in the scriptural context. In fact, I watched a guy the other day that had a, had a talent. He was able to use his shoulder blades to crack eggs open. <laughs> and yeah, was a, <laughs> that's not a spiritual gift, uh, by the way. Um, also, when I got done watching that video, I thought, man, that was the, probably the biggest waste of time. <laughs> you know, thanks, YouTube Shorts. You know, like, <laughs> so they're not talents. They're not natural abilities. These are spiritual gifts. These are things that are given by God, special supernatural abilities that God has given each one of us in here, each one of you, if you're in Christ. You've been given one of these gifts to minister to God and to minister to the body of Christ. Now, how do they bring unity? Okay, so you notice the, the heading is the gifts that bring unity. When you read these other sections about spiritual gifts, you understand that there are diversities of gifts, but yet one gift giver. Okay, this is a really important thing to understand. Unity in the body of Christ is not uniformity. Like we don't all do the exact same thing and think the same thing and have the same gifting and all that stuff, but there's unity in the sense of like, let's put it like this. My hand has been given the gift to be a hand. My foot has been given the gift to be a foot. Uh, my mouth has been given the gift to be, you know, my wife wouldn't say that that's always a gift. Now, that's the idea though. Different gifts, different callings, but all situated under the head. The head is giving the signal. And that's how the body of Christ is, is Jesus has gifted all kinds of different gifts and different people, but the unity comes when everybody's using those gifts all situated underneath the Lordship of Jesus Christ. What that looks like in a church is the leadership of the church is seeking Jesus for the leadership of the church because we're in the Word, and the congregation is seeking the Lordship of Jesus Christ because the congregation individually is in the Word seeking Jesus. And that's, that's how the church is to operate, is everybody's seeking Him, all using our gifts, organized under the Lordship of Jesus Christ. Now, so verses 8 through 10 the point of these is that the gifts are given by Christ. And he kind of says this in an interesting way. He says, therefore, he says, when he ascended on high, he led captivity captive. He gave gifts to men. The point is very simple. Jesus descended from heaven. And then after his crucifixion, death, and resurrection, he ascended back to heaven, victorious, filling all things in the universe. And in this process, he distributed gifts to the body of Christ. It's interesting. Paul looks back to this psalm. He quotes Psalm 68, verse 18 here. And uh, I don't know if you've read that psalm before, but it's, it's kind of interesting. The way Paul quotes it versus um, the way it's actually written in Psalm 68, 18. Here's Psalm 68, 18. It says, You have ascended on high. You have led captivity captive. You have received gifts among men even from the rebellious, that the Lord might dwell there. Do you notice the difference between what I just read in Psalm 68 and what it says here in Ephesians? Yeah, very good. It's interesting that Paul quotes Psalm 68, 18 seemingly in the wrong way. In Psalm 68, 18, it has to do with a military leader that's conquered. He's conquered and like vanquished his enemies and he's ascended high above every other enemy. And then he's taken the spoils of war and distributed them to his people. And so 
it's interesting why Paul kind of quotes this differently here. And um, I don't have the exact answer for why he does that. A lot of commentators believe that he was quoting what's called a targum, which is an Aramaic commentary on the Old Testament of the Bible because they have found it written like that. And so they think maybe Paul's quoting like that. So I don't have the answer for that, but you can ask Paul when you get to glory. So the point is simple, though, that when it says he ascended, he led captivity captive, he gave gifts to men. That's the point, that he gave these gifts to the body of Christ, to people. Christ is the gift giver, okay? Now when it goes on to verse 9, it says, now this, he ascended. Well, what does it mean, but he first also descended? Very simple. If Christ is if, he, if, if Paul is saying about Christ that he ascended to heaven, then it means that he descended at some point, right? That's common sense. Reminds me of this treehouse my grandpa built for my cousins and me. We sat in the thing like all the time until lightning struck it, actually. Good thing we weren't in it. But for the most part, we were in it. And if somebody had to go get something and come back, you know, they would come back and they would ascend up the ladder. And it's like, if they're ascending, they must have descended, right? That's the same point he's trying to make is just Christ at some point descended. Now, the question is, is where did Christ descend to? Notice that he descended into the lower parts of the earth. Now, I have to tell you, there is considerable debate about what this passage means. And I, I don't know if I have the exact answer for this part of it either. Here's a couple of the different um, takes on it, and I'll give them to you. One camp says that this refers to Jesus' ministry in Hades after the crucifixion. Now, you read in Luke chapter 16 about Lazarus and the rich man. You guys familiar with that story? Uh, Lazarus and the rich man, this guy Lazarus, he dies, he goes to Hades, and he's in Hades, and there you see a description of what goes on in Hades. Apparently, Hades, otherwise known as the grave, is a two-compartment sort of place where you have those that are in Hades in torment, and then you have those that are in a place called Abraham's bosom. Now, you read about this in Luke chapter 16. Abraham's bosom is the place that before the resurrection and the ascension, this is where believing people died where they went. So almost like Hades is this like lower part, it's called the grave, and there's like a place in there where the believing dead went, and then there's the place where the outside of God people went to Hades and torment. You can look it up in Luke chapter 16, and Peter talks about this when he says, uh, 1 Peter 3.19 says, by whom also he went and preached to the spirits in prison. And that's what that is dealing with, is when Jesus was crucified, when he said, it is finished, Jesus in an immaterial way somehow went and preached the gospel to all that had died in Christ or in God before the crucifixion, before Jesus came. You've often wondered that. What happened to people that were faithful, that believed in God, that died before you know, Jesus, right? You've often wondered, where did they go? They go to Hades, and then at that point that Peter's talking about, Jesus went and he preaches, and then he led captivity captive. He took them all out of this place and took them to heaven. That's one take on it. Now, another take is, is that the lower parts of the earth simply refers to Jesus coming to our lowly world. Um, in Philippians, talks about it, that he made himself of no reputation, taking the form of a bondservant and coming in the likeness of men, being found in an appearance as a man. He humbled himself and he became obedient to the point of death, even the death on the cross. So this take says that the lower parts of the earth would refer to that. Jesus leaving his home above, 
descending to the earth, descending to a lowly death on the cross, and then he ascended. Who's right? Again, you're going to have to ask the Apostle Paul about that. I think the second one is right because it fits the context more. It has to deal with, uh, you know, simply uh, just the victory over the grave. Psalm 68, 18 has to deal with victory. And so I think it's the second. Uh, the context doesn't really support anything about Jesus going and preaching to, you know. So either of those things could be the case there. Verse 10 he who descended is also the one who ascended far above all the heavens that he, might that he might fill all things. So he, the one who humbled himself as a servant, is the same one that ascended far above the heavens in universal supremacy. And so, again, Paul's point of all of that, as far as I can tell, is to say that Jesus is the one that gives gifts to the body. And then he added this ascension and descension part. Jesus is the one who's conquered all. He's conquered death He's conquered every enemy. He's high above everything in the universe. And he has chosen from his wisdom and intelligence to give you the spiritual gift that you have to serve him and to serve the body of Christ. That's pretty staggering. It's pretty an amazing truth. Now, verse 11. Now we're going to talk about the gifted offices that Christ gives to the church. Verse 7 dealt with the spiritual gifts that Christ gives to individual believers. Now we are dealing with the gifted offices that Christ gives to the church. Verse 11, and he himself gave some to be apostles, some prophets, some evangelists, and some pastors and teachers. Now, these are the gifted offices that Jesus has given to the church. Now, there are four of them here. Interesting, I bring that up because it looks like there are five of them, doesn't it? Uh, apostles, prophets, evangelists, pastors, and teachers. Wouldn't that be five? Well, the Greek scholars tell us that pastor-teacher should be combined into one office. It's, I'm not a Greek scholar. I know how to read them. And they say that there's... And you kind of get the hint of it from the language here because it says some to be apostles, some prophets, some evangelists, some pastors, and then it doesn't say some teachers. The translators are kind of trying to communicate this, that it's one office with two descriptions. So here you have the fourfold ministry of offices that Jesus gave to the church, okay? Now, what's an apostle? So first of all, the word apostle in Greek is the word apostolos, it's so the English word apostle is not a translation of the Greek words. It's a transliteration. So in other words, the Greek word sounds a lot just like the uh, English word. Uh, and the closest word that we have to define what an apostle is would be an ambassador. An ambassador. Now in the scriptures, there seem to be two senses in the way that this word is used. You have like your capital A apostles that were the original ones that Jesus appointed directly. He, and they saw him in his resurrected state. They were, they were authoritative in their writings, uh, in the scriptures and in their words. They laid the once for all foundation of the church, is what it says in Ephesians 2.20. Now, in this sense, there's never been any apostles like those since then. Now, there is, there are other people in scriptures that are called apostles in like maybe you could call it 
a lower A sense, not a capital A sense. And they have an apostolic calling. They're, they have this sort of calling of being like an ambassador, taking the word of God to places and establishing the word of God. People today have apostolic callings, but not the same authorities. It's a very important thing to understand in the body of Christ. Now, the next thing he says, prophets, in Paul's time, they were those who received direct revelation and spoke forth the word of God before the New Testament was written. Now, in 1 Corinthians 14, prophets are described also as those who encourage and edify the church by speaking forth the word of God. Sometimes this has a predictive element, but not always. Really, the, the meaning of the word just has speaking forth of the word of God. Um, and so Paul says in 1 Corinthians 14, prophets two or three are to speak, and then they are subject to the discernment and judgment of the church leadership. You can read that in 1 Corinthians 14, 29. As with apostles, the prophets don't speak with the same authority today as those that established the New Testament or the, the foundation of the church. Let me read Ephesians 2, 20 to you to show you that point. You can look there in your Bible. Ephesians 2, 20 says, He's talking about the church, and he says, having been built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Jesus Christ himself being the cornerstone. Very important verse to understand because there was something significant about the apostles and prophets that were there that were commissioned to lay the foundation of the church. I bring that out today, and I, I have to make a warning to everybody, uh, you know, today that there are people today that claim to have the same authority as the original apostles. They claim to have authority that's on par with the people that wrote the scriptures. Now, I would caution you about anything like that. If you run into somebody that calls themselves apostle this or apostle that, that should send up a red flag or prophet this, that should send up a red flag. Right? And I heard a pastor talking about this, and I'm just going to repeat what he said because I think, it was, I think it was good. He says, you know, if there were apostles like this or prophets in this day, they would have enough sense to not go around telling people that that's... Because think about how weird that would get, right? Here we are, a bunch of Christians just having a Bible study, and in comes the apostle, you know, or in comes the prophet. You know, we would all be saying, oh, hey, prophet, prophesy over me, you know, almost like a, like a psychic or something, you know, give me some sort of word, you know. We don't have apostles and prophets in the same way that we did in New Testament times, okay? Now, there are people with these callings today, and the gift of prophecy is alive and well in the church when people are speaking forth the Word of God into people's life. So, you can read 1 Corinthians 14 about that again. Now, the next one, he says, evangelists. Now, these are the people that are particularly gifted with sharing the gospel of Jesus Christ with others and bringing people into the church, all Christians are called to evangelize, Matthew 28, 19 through 20. But some are extremely gifted at it, right? And I've heard it said once before, kind of a joke, that th those that are gifted with evangelism are the ones that can hear no a lot and not get discouraged, you know? I don't know if that's true, but, but some people are just extremely gifted with sharing the gospel. And this is a gifted office to the body of Christ. The next one, pastor, teachers. So, Pastor in the Greek is the word poimen, which means a shepherd. So the shepherd, the pastor is a shepherd. They feed, they nurture, they care for, and they protect the body of Christ from enemies. A shepherd's task is not to acquire sheep, it's to tend to sheep. 
the, the job <coughs> description is very simple. Teach and tend, right? That's what you do. You teach and you tend. The feeding of the flock, the way the shepherd feeds the flock is through the teaching of the word of God. Right? This is the primary call of the pastor teacher uh, in the body of Christ is to feed, care for, warn, protect the body of Christ, feed them the word of God. So the whole theme of this chapter uh, is unity. And then Paul starts by talking about the individual gifts given to people, verse 7. And then he talks about these gifted offices that Jesus has given to the church. These offices, pastor, teachers, prophets, these offices, if anything, what they're supposed to be doing is leading people into unity, right? Now, when that's happening, when the body of Christ is situated under the headship of Jesus and, and everybody's operating in unity and these gifted offices are in the church performing as they should, what kind of growth can we expect? And that's our next and last point, the growth that comes in unity, First of all, the growth that comes when the church is in unity, the saints are equipped for ministry. Look at verse 12. He says, For the equipping of the saints, for the work of ministry, for the edifying of the body of Christ. Now, the pastor teacher and the other offices, their responsibility is to equip God's people to do the work of ministry. Now, we need to take time and look at this for a second because this is not maybe how you've understood church and how you've understood your place in the church. You know, I remember when I grew up in church, I, I went and I thought, that guy up there in the robe, he's the professional, he's the minister, and then we sit out here and we listen to what he says and then we go about our life. You know, and I thought, and I thought, well, there are some really weird Christians that go on missions trips and stuff like that. You know, that's what I thought when I was, you know, I, I thought there, were, there was a difference between people that were ministers and then people that just went to church. And, and I didn't know the difference. But this verse is absolutely, it changes your whole understanding of who you are and what your place is and, and what the church is all about. He says, uh, for the equipping of the saints for the work of ministry. That word equipping in the Greek is a really interesting word. It's, it was used in a medical context of setting a broken bone back into the right place or mending a net that had been torn. That's interesting. The work of the pastor, the work of the, of the offices in the church is to set people back into a restored state. That's, a, that's fascinating. I love that terminology there. That's the work of the church office. I remember when I came into Calvary Chapel for the first time in California. And I'll tell you the story a little bit. I won't go too far into it. But the night, the Friday night before, I'd been DJing at a party. And I'd been following the Lord loosely for a few years. And um, I had taken a bunch of ecstasy pills and was just like so convicted that what I'd been doing was wrong. And... Um, I was like, I got to get to church, man. You know, like I can't be one of these at-home Christians that, you know, studies a podcast. You know, I need to get part of the body of Christ and I need accountability. And so I found a church through God's help and, and I walk into Calvary Chapel that Sunday morning and the guy preaches from 2 Thessalonians and the message was called True Discipleship. And I thought, oh, this is great, I'm at home, you know. And I sat all the way in the back because I was... I was freaked out, you know. 
And at the end of the message, he comes up and he says, who today wants to roll their sleeves up with, and serve Jesus Christ? And I was like, yeah, yeah, me, you know? And so I he stand up and I stood up and everybody in the church turned around and prayed for me. And I'm telling you, man, my life's never been the same. But I, you know, after that, I walked up to the pastor after the service and, and he was like, you know, yeah, you. And, and I was like, man, I want to serve Jesus. We need to do Christian raves and we need to like do, you know, do all this stuff. And I was so, I was still on drugs, you know, I was still coming down off drugs, you know. And uh, he's like, whoa. <laughs> he's like, why don't you just hang out? And the dude took me back to his office after that and hung out. And he gave me this book called Pilgrim's Progress. And he gave me a memory verse. And he said, why don't you memorize Romans 12, 1 through 2 and Ephesians 2, 8 and 9. He says, come back next week, man. And yeah, you've got a lot of good ideas. And you know, he set what was out of joint back in the right place, right? And it took a long time, you know, it kind of took a lot of, a lot of work for him, but that's the idea is a pastor and the offices in the church are to equip. They're to take people that are not in their right mind. My case is extreme, but they're to take people that are not doing what God's called them to do and to set it right, to get them back, to get them to the place of where they're doing what they've been created to do. And that's a beautiful calling. This guy, he, you know, he took me under his wing and he discipled me, the same guy that helped me start this church, you know, years and years later. He's still my, he's still my faithful mentor. Here we are almost, you know, 20 years later, you know, I've known him. What a calling. What a calling. God's raising up people to do this stuff. This is beautiful. Now, they come in and they are to be equipped with the Word of God. 2 Timothy chapter 3, verses 16 through 17. Read this verse with me. 2 Timothy chapter 3, verse 16, it says, All Scripture is given by inspiration of God and is profitable for doctrine, for reproof, for correction, for instruction in righteousness, that the man or woman of God may be complete, thoroughly equipped for every good work. How do I get equipped for every good work in the body of Christ? It's through the Word of God. I love that there. Because there was times where I felt, well, I don't know if I can get equipped. I, don't have, I didn't do this and didn't do that and didn't go, I don't have a, you know, didn't go to college. Don't, you know. Hey, all you need is the Word of God to be thoroughly equipped to serve God. That's all you need. Thoroughly equipped. And so that's what this office does is, is you know, this should change your mind of church. Your idea about church of coming on a Sunday morning, if, if you have this idea of like, I just go there and listen to some stuff, then I leave and go about my life, it's not biblical whatsoever. The church, this, this is one of the reasons I think Calvary Chapel has been so successful uh, in sending out people. I don't think Calvary Chapel is the way, the truth, the life. There are a lot of good movements, but Calvary has definitely been successful in sending out people to plant churches and pastors and so on. And I think this is why, because... Calvary's have a good grasp of what church is supposed to actually be about. Sunday morning primarily is not to be evangelistic. It's not to be attractional to try to get the world into the church. Sunday morning is a time of equipping the saints, you guys, for ministry. The pastor shows up here to equip you to do the ministry in your marriage, in your families, in your community, at your job, at the gym, Everywhere that you go, that's why you come here is for the equipping in the word of God. Remember what it said in 2 Timothy? You will be thoroughly equipped for every good work through the word of God. And that's, Calvary has that vision of coming and laboring verse by verse, the whole counsel of God, getting that into people, discipling people from the pulpit on Sundays, right? Calvary movements are, they're not about pleasing man. 
they're about building the church. Now, what's interesting, although Calvary would tell you that Sunday morning is not primarily evangelistic, Calvaries have been tremendously successful in evangelism without focusing on evangelism, you know? It's always, Chuck always said, healthy sheep multiply. When you build the body of Christ, the body of Christ does the work of ministry, just like Paul says that's supposed to happen here. They share the word of God. They evangelize other people. They bring them to church. They do Bible studies in their home with them. They uh, serve in ministries. And so what a vision here. When this vision gets in your heart, it's so exciting to go to church on Sunday morning. You know, ah, I'm going to go there and I'm going to get equipped more and more for this thing that God's called me to do. Beautiful. So important to be equipped in the Word of God. It reminds me to this person I was talking about the other day. I said, what's your favorite Bible story? And they said, well, let me think about it for a moment. Oh, yeah, it's definitely the one where Moses parts the Jordan River and Jesus carries the Ten Commandments down from Mount Sinai. And there's that amazing moment when Paul defeats Goliath with this slingshot at the Battle of Geritol. And, uh, oh, who can forget when Noah builds the ark in Kentucky and they escape the fiery furnace? And then about when David and Samson team up to fight the Philistine army and they get paid a widow's mite. which is so sad that that's the state of the body of Christ in 2023. I did, that was a fictitious story. I didn't really ask somebody and they didn't answer like that. The saints are equipped for ministry. That's what happens when the body of Christ is operating like it's supposed to. The next point, verse 13, the church comes to unity of doctrine and knowledge of Jesus Christ. Look at verse 13. It says, till we all, till, this is the result, until we all come to the unity of the faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God to a perfect man, to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ, right? Notice those words there, all come to the unity of the faith, the definite article, the faith, the entire body of Christian doctrine. The church comes to unity in doctrine. And in the knowledge of Christ, look at that, and in the knowledge of the Son of God. There should be a unity among God's people. Who is Jesus? It shouldn't be, well, Jesus to me is this, and Jesus to me is that. That's dangerous. You know who Jesus is to Oprah? He's one of many ways that you can choose to get to heaven. There's to be a unity in the body of Christ. Who is Jesus? He's the Son of God. He's fully God. He's fully man. He died on a cross. He resurrected three days later. He was in the grave. He ascended. He's at the right hand of the Father interceding. He gives gifts to men. He raises up people to serve him, and he's coming back again. That's Jesus, right? There's to be a unity of the doctrine and of the knowledge of Christ and the body, and the body of Christ. And then he says, to the perfect man, uh, that just means maturity, to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ. We're, we're growing in the likeness of Christ. So the saints are equipped for ministry. The church comes to unity of doctrine and knowledge of Jesus. And verse 14, believers can stand against false doctrine. Look at this, verse 14. He says that we should no longer be children tossed to and fro and carried about with every wind of doctrine by the trickery of men and the cunning craftiness of deceitful plotting. When the offices are operating correctly in the body of Christ, believers can detect false teaching. Two years ago for our anniversary, Aaron and I went to uh, Southern California, and uh, it was, we were up early one morning, and we went to Cappy's in Newport Beach for breakfast, and uh, great omelets. Yeah. Oh, man. And huge omelets, right? And then once we wrapped up there with my dear friends from SoCal, we went to go parasailing, and uh, Aaron's idea, right? And... <coughs> 
everything was beautiful. Newport Harbor out there, sitting on the boat. But that big breakfast. And I don't know if you've ever been on a boat in Newport Harbor after you just ate a huge omelet. And it was all I could do to keep that puppy down. And I was, I was wearing this white, like I thought I would be a cool like nautical dude and I had this white button-up shirt on. And my, my face was as white as the shirt, <laughs> you know, like ghosted, you know. And I'm sitting there going, <laughs> are you okay? She's fine. Everybody else on the boat's fine. <laughs> but we were literally tossed around to and fro on this boat. It was just like, and I'm just sitting there like, oh God, please help me. The parasailing was gentle and smooth. I was like, I'd rather go back up there than sit on this boat. Oh my goodness. That's what Paul likens Christians to that have no foundation in the scriptures. He says they're battered around to and fro with every wind of doctrine that comes through the church. And it happens. Christians hear something. Oh, wow, that's really cool. Look at this. Look at what's going on over there. And they go over there. Look at what's going on. And they go over here. And I haven't even been a pastor very long. I mean, 11 years. And I have seen people get up and get blown around by trends and fads and these different things. And here's the funny thing about them is every one of them can be traced to something else that happened in the past. You can almost detect the false teacher that did it before and failed once their plan got foiled and somebody rehashes it, markets it, sells it to people, and the, the non-committed Christians that don't know the Word of God, they get sucked up out of Bible-teaching churches and they go over these false trends and it happens and it happens over and over again. That's what he's talking about here. He's saying if you're established in the Word of God, a Christian doesn't get battered around by every wind of doctrine that comes around. I remember the first time I saw this in this church, there was a guy, dear brother, he's home with the Lord now. And he came to me one morning and he says, I got to really tell you, I, I disagree with what you're saying. Man, man wasn't born sinful. Uh, man learned how to sin. And it was just like, dude, he went home and watched a YouTube video that was really well produced and the guy was convincing to him. And it's just, you know, people that don't have the foundation in the word, every time they hear something that comes and piques their interest, you know, they get led astray. And you get that feeling of just eventually like, uh, who can trust any of this stuff? Who knows? You know, and it's a bad feeling to be there. Now, it's good to be, he says that he calls them children, and it's good to be a child in Christ for a while. You know, that's a good thing. Just like when somebody has a baby, you go visit and cute, that's a cute baby. And you go visit him like 22 years later and the guy's still in diapers smoking a cigar with a beard. You're like, no, that's, <laughs> he's supposed to grow up out of that. <laughs> you know what I mean? That's a vivid picture, but... So, Christians in the, in the Word of God cannot detect only the, the true from the false. They can detect the true from the almost true. So, the next thing, the church matures and grows as each person does their part, verse 15 and 16. But speaking the truth in love, they may grow up in all things into Him, who's the head, Christ, for, for whom the whole body joined and knit together by what every joint supplies, according to the effective working by which every part does its share, causes growth of the body, for the edifying of itself in love. Whew, Paul is so wordy. What he's saying is the church members are joined, knit together, and then when everybody is using their gift, everybody's doing their part. And as everybody's doing their part, using their gift in the church, the whole thing grows up in love. Beautiful thing. So, the saints are equipped for ministry. The church comes to unity of doctrine and knowledge of Jesus. Believers can stand against false teaching, and the church matures and grows as each person does their part. In summary, Jesus gave gifts to the body of Christ, spiritual gifts to individuals. 
and he gave gifted offices to the church to equip you, the saints, for ministry. And when everybody's doing their part in love and unity, everything grows up as it should. Now, I just want to conclude by saying the distinction between laity and clergy has been probably one of the most crippling things to the work of Christ in the church. The idea that there are certain people that are ministers and then the rest of us are just, you know, here to listen. That has caused tremendous damage to the body of Christ. And when you read the scriptures, you find that it just isn't, it isn't biblical. I want to really encourage you today. If you're stuck in this mentality that you attend and other people do the work, you're, you're just not doing your part. You know? You've got a ministry that God's given you. It doesn't matter how old you are, you know, if you're old enough to sit out here and understand. I mean, God's given you a ministry in your church family. He's given you a ministry in your neighborhood. He's given you a ministry where you work. He's given you a ministry where you go to school, all these things. And if you're not engaged in that ministry, you're not doing your part. You're missing something. Now, you need to be equipped to do ministry. You can't go out and imagine what the Word of God says. You have to go learn and be equipped in the Word of God to do ministry. But with that, you don't have to have like a four-year Bible degree for that. You just have to know the true Jesus and the true, true gospel, and you've got to be being equipped. If you aren't getting equipped for your ministry, you are missing what God has for you. And I'd like to say this could be the very thing that your life is missing. It could be. Maybe you could make that switch in your mind today, even now, that you need to be equipped for the work of ministry. That it's not, it's not about sitting and going and spectating, being a spectator. This is God's will for your life. I'll challenge you with this because I think this is so important. The world is getting darker and darker, and we live in a day where people are twisting truth and poisoning minds like I've never seen. And you might find this, this next stuff I'm going to say offensive, but man, Oprah tells people that Jesus is one of many ways to God. The creator of The Chosen says that Mormons are Christians. Lauren Daigle has a living couple living in homosexuality on her new, her new album says in an interview that she's not clear on what the Bible says about homosexuality. You've got blatant satanic rituals being performed at the Grammys. Did anybody watch the Grammys last year? Oh my word, it's a blatant satanic sex orgy ritual at the Grammys. You've got guys like Jack Black leading people in a prayer to Satan at an awards show. Jack Black, he's harmless, right? He makes fun of Christianity. He says that if, if, he says if homosexuality is wrong, then we should all not eat shellfish too. So he doesn't understand how the Old Testament and the New Testament work together. You know? And he gets out and these people are in these incredible, powerful positions and they are twisting truth like never before. And they all have platforms through their social media and all this stuff. And I'm telling you that people that don't know the difference between right and almost right, they're going to fall. There is a great falling away before Christ returns, prophesied in Thessalonians. And it is happening. People are being led, tossed to and fro, being led by their feelings more than they're being led by the Word of God. And most people, I, maybe it's just pure laziness. They don't want to study. 
One of these dear sisters from this church posted a video a long time, or a meme a long time ago on Facebook. It said, and it had a picture of a guy sitting in a man cave, like eating Cheetos. And then it had another guy sitting in a, in a library reading a book. And he says, we need to trade out the man cave and go back to the library, you know? And it's like, well, maybe there's something to that. Listen, I'm not trying to be offensive, but it's, this is a pretty much a wake-up call, right? We're in this time where we Christians aren't going to make it. They're not going to get it. They're going to get led into some sort of movement that is not of God, and they're not going to know the difference. It's not a time for people that know a few Bible verses here and there out of context and then pray when they want something. This is a time for mighty men and women of God to stand up and discipline themselves for godliness, to be competent and to be strong in the Word. God is calling such people, and I know He's calling you. There's a tremendous battle for souls happening all around in Mason City in 2023. Schools are telling kids that they can pick their own gender, letting them read pornographic books so they can learn how to perform oral sex. This is the world that people live in. And what are Christians doing? This is a time for Christians to be equipped. This is not a time for people to be casual about their Christianity. It's not a time for weak Christians. It's not a time for what Paul said, you know, what Paul says to Timothy. He says, you know, you are a soldier in the Lord. You just should not be getting entangled in civilian pursuits. And that's the sad tale of the church is the church is worldly. Entangled in civilian pursuits when we ought to be enlisted in the Lord's army. We ought to be doing this. It's not a time for worldly pursuits, but a time for God's people to rise up, be equipped, and serve until we die or until the Lord comes and grabs us. It's not a time for flesh agendas or push-me-pull-me's. It's a time for unity in Christ and for men and women to rise to God's challenge on their life to be equipped. Isn't Jesus amazing? To him who reconciled us to God, forgives our sin, rescues us from death, and sets captives free from bondage, he gives us eternal life, life everlasting. To him who equips and commissions a bunch of nobodies, he uses the foolish to confound the wise. He uses the weak things in this world. To him who calls to be, he says, come and be equipped and come serve me. To him we commit our lives. Father.